0: So everyone's now mourning the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a Supreme Court justice appointed by Bill Clinton in 1993, who has served on the court now, just about 30 years. Obviously, to many people, a legend uh, on the court. But it's happening in the midst of of a political season, of an election season. It's a pretty rare event. I think there's two elections where, to some extent, court politics entered the election, although there's always a lot more than just that, and I'll talk about those. How does it break? I mean, I think essentially 2020 is an election featuring incumbent in the White House, and those elections, no matter what the media says, no matter what now social media or people are out there saying, is always about the performance of the incumbent and how American voters view that performance. That's really it. At best, you can have an inspiring challenger rise to the occasion, but it's usually even that, uh, even a silver tongue orator won't get anywhere unless there's a problem with performance. But since you know COVID-19 has happened, Trump's been down in the polls, you could say you know anything that distracts from just you. If you're the challenger here, if you're Biden, you want that election to be about him and only him. You want Trump out there talking all the time. The focus to be on the president and what he's done. That's just standard textbook running against an incumbent. Um, 1992, one of the elections we're going to talk about, that was a mandate given to the campaign. Um, The the phrase that comes out of the 1992 campaign famously is, it's the economy, stupid. Stupid. But really what that meant is that was an internal document. It wasn't the Clinton campaign slogan. No, heavens no. It was an internal discipline document about messaging. You know, you put that up on the marker board because you want the campaign focus that their message should always be. It's the economy stupid. They're not going to go out and tell people they're stupid. They wanted to focus in 92 on President Bush's performance. If it got to anything else like those days when it was about Bill Clinton's character, they weren't good days for the campaign. And so in that vein, anything else that's not specifically making the election about Trump or COVID or his performance or the current state of the economy or the number of people unemployed or things like that, unrest that's occurring, anything that can shift it to something else, say protests getting out of control, right? Say Biden's own gaffes and now a Supreme Court battle I think there's just an there is an element where that's a benefit benefit for Republicans in that you're getting that election away from where you want it to be on and there's nothing that can be done about it I mean no one can control an event like this on the other hand we have yet to see what this does for turnout it certainly had an impact on fundraising we've yet to see what it has to do for turnout you could argue that it could cut both ways you know, I, I could accept almost any prediction on that. It could go for Republicans because this is their chance to get another court seat and look at the 2016 election that had a big impact on voting per exit polls. Even a, somewhere near 10 to 15 percent of Republican voters didn't like that they were voting for Donald Trump, voted for him. And the Supreme Court was one of those issues. OK, now it's 2020 and. A very rare event has occurred again—that there's the Supreme Court opening in the middle of an election. So you could certainly argue it that way. However, I seem to think that it might matter to voters, like who was in the seat before. So in 2016, that was Scalia's seat; he was appointed by Reagan. Okay, this is now Ginsburg's seat—in quotes, appointed by Bill Clinton. Do you fight harder as voters, or you're more likely to go out and vote to defend? rather than to gain, that's possible. Talk a bit about two elections where there was um, a Supreme Court opening did figure into the election in some extent. One would be 1968. In June of 1968, before the election, Earl Warren retires, and he's just not any Supreme Court justice. He's the chief justice of the United States. And Of course, he's one of the better known ones in modern American history. When you hear about Miranda warnings, when, you know, many civil rights, um, contraceptives, privacy, all of these many issues that have to do with individual rights. Of course, Brown v. Board of Ed is the first major decision under his tenure at the Supreme Court. So this isn't just anybody retiring. This is Earl Warren retiring, a huge He gives what he calls a tentative retirement pending his replacement. So he's going to continue to serve on the Supreme Court till he's replaced to Lyndon Johnson, who's the president at that time. Now, Lyndon Johnson has a decision to make, and he's got a few people. There's a fellow, Arthur Goldberg, who had been on the Supreme Court appointed by Kennedy. He's been serving as United Nations ambassador. Johnson thinks about him. But does he want to pull him off that job? He thinks about many people in his cabinet, you know, Army Secretary Cyrus Vance. But a lot of these people, it's the middle of the Vietnam War, doesn't want to pull them. And so he goes to Abe Fortas. Abe Fortas is a friend of his, uh, somebody who gave legal advice. Lyndon Johnson nominates Fortas to be Chief Justice of the United States to replace Earl Warren. And then to take Fortas's seat, he's going to choose Homer Thornberry, who's a Texan uh, actually, person that succeeded him in the House of Representatives. Um, now, he can do that. This is exactly what George W. Bush did when William Wank- William Rehnquist died. He appointed Roberts, who was already up for a Supreme Court seat, for the, the chief position and then got to name another nominee. Um, who was that? I guess that was Sam Alito at that time. So it's kind of like, hey, this is a great opportunity for Democrats, this is a good opportunity for Lyndon Johnson. Perhaps his error is that he's picking two people that are tightly associated with him. And Fortas and also Thornberry, who's the congressman that replaced him in his seat. I mean, these are Johnson allies and he's going to have them on the court. On the other hand, there hadn't been a president's nominee rejected For 38 years, goes back to Herbert Hoover, whose nominee, John J. Parker, was accused of racism. Again, anti-labor and the AFL and the NAACP opposed him. You had a justice, uh, John Marshall Harlan, who was initially rejected by the Senate. This is under Eisenhower administration, but later confirmed. So we're not going to count that one. President's nominees have been put on the Supreme Court now. Now you've got a strong... Law and Order campaign going on in 1968. Republicans feel good. Even Lyndon Johnson's predicting that the the ins are going to be out in this election. That is, by the way, the subject of Draft Johnson, a uh, special podcast episode that we have on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash mhcbuyp. My history can beat up your politics the letter. MHCBUYP, Strom Thurmond, senator from South Carolina, switched from the Democratic to Republican Party. He's supporting Nixon in this election. He walks Nixon up to the stage. He leads the opposition. He is doing everything they can to filibuster the nominee, to delay the nominee so that Fortas will not be approved. There's a story that Fortas had received $15,000 from private donors for a seminar that he made at American University which at this time, at least, for Supreme Court justice, turns a few heads, um, causes a few eye rolls. The Senate receives 50,000 letters and telegrams for Fortas' nomination. And more than this is going on, you have senators like Wallace Bennett, a Republican from Utah, who says initially that he'll support the Fortas nomination and then goes through a bruiser of a primary with a John Birch Society candidate very far right he comes back to DC after that experience he says you know basically tells Washington insiders I'm not going to publicly make any statement to to support this guy some Democrats don't want to do it either which is different from the situation that that happened in 2016 with uh, Merrick Garland is that Fortas does get a vote in the Senate and 45 senators vote yes the other 43 want the debate to continue. In other words, they don't want to vote no. It's still such a big deal to vote no on a president's SCOTUS nominee, but they want to continue the debate. They're delaying. Johnson withdraws the nomination. He also withdraws the nomination for Homer Thornberry. And he's not able to, um, Nixon wins the election. Johnson's not able to appoint anybody to replace the these two significant seats on the Supreme Court. Um, Nixon, also with the resignation of uh, Hugo Black and um, William O. Douglas, at the same time, is able to put four seats on the Supreme Court and change the direction of the Supreme Court. By the way, it's not something that's um, that's just by accident. And John Dean, who was involved in these events, has a great book called The Rehnquist Choice, which talks about how he, John Dean, is partially responsible for putting Rehnquist on the court, that this was actually you know a a deliberate campaign to get openings to um with the threatened impeachments to get openings on the court um Hugo Blacks because he got ill so that's it was also timing these justices were getting older black was appointed by fdr it's now you know you're now talking about the nixon being president so um in any case so it's it's a supreme court politics affecting the election year in 1968 but also the election year affecting Supreme Court politics. So it was a law and order year. Okay, the other election would be 1992. It wasn't a Supreme Court opening in the middle of the election, but you did have a major, major Supreme Court decision, and that was Planned Parenthood versus Casey. It was thought, among particularly the Clinton campaign, they were in a ready mode that that decision was going to go against Roe v. Wade and um, change Uh, abortion in the United States. Instead, because of what's apparently some last minute maneuvering within the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor, David Souter get together and and release a kind of moderating decision, mostly uh, appealing to stare decisis, like, look, whatever the merits of Roe v. Wade, you can't change the rules now. You know, something about Liberty can't take any solace in a jurisprudence of doubt if I have it right. So it's not what the Clinton campaign expects. But nonetheless, that highlights how tenuous the Supreme Court is on the issue of abortion. And certainly uh, polls taken in 92 are showing more Americans pro-choice. And so that's an issue, a major issue for Clinton in that campaign. All right. Now, when Clinton becomes president in 1993, he immediately gets to make an appointment. And that will turn out to be Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who just died this past weekend. I think it's worthwhile to tell a little story that's not known, that that person could have been Mario Cuomo, the governor of New York and the father of the current governor of New York. Mario Cuomo's his first choice. And as George Stephanopoulos tells it, there was then this agonizing waiting period, which just seems to be like, Every decision that uh, Mara Cuomo needed to make. Um, here we go again. George Stephanopoulos is negotiating with Andrew Cuomo at this time over what's going to take. know, um, There's a certain point where there's a delay. The president tries to call for Cuomo. He doesn't answer. I mean, he's got to fill this seat, you know. Here we go again, Stephanopoulos says in his book, All Too Human. Andrew and I were caught up in the world's oldest courtship ritual, He was telling Cuomo that Clinton really wanted him. I was assuring Clinton that Cuomo really wanted him. Andrew worked his father over all through the wedding, asking him four times if he was sure. I didn't have to work that hard with Clinton. Putting Cuomo in the court seemed even more attractive to him after 18 holes. At 11.30 that night, Andrew called me one more time from a rest stop on the New York State Thruway. Mario was on board. I relayed the message to the President at 9.30, the next morning just before meeting with Ginsburg. After that, Clinton told me to call Andrew again and let him know that Cuomo should expect a call around 6 p.m. At 5 o'clock, the full Supreme Court selection team was scheduled to meet in the Oval. Clinton tells a staff meeting putting Cuomo on the court would make a big, powerful statement. If he doesn't say yes, we'll announce Ginsburg tomorrow. There he had said it, Steinberg says. But before anyone could even begin to make a counter-argument, Mario Cuomo was on the line my stomach sank to my knees. This couldn't be good news. It was 5.45 and Cuomo knew that Clinton was scheduled to call at six. I picked the phone in the dining room up and Cuomo started a soliloquy. George Andrews has been trying very hard to bring me to change my view, but I feel like, I feel that I would be doing a disservice to the president. I feel that I would not be able to do what we all need, including supporting the president politically. I surrender so many opportunities of service if I take the court. So that's it. I mean, and there's a lot of speculation, just like there's speculation about why, you know, why, why, why Mario Cuomo didn't run for president. So, But it could have very well been. Now, Cuomo ends up dying in 2015 had that appointment been made. And if all history is, if you can follow lines like that, you know, you would have had a, an appointment during the Obama presidency. So I think that's an interesting story. Um, okay, so a lot of talk about elections and who it's going to affect. We'll see what happens there. Um, the 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 whole question here is not really history; it's more politics. Because the real issue is that okay, the Republicans said in the past that they, you know, they should wait for the election to appoint a Supreme Court justice, and now they're obviously leaning towards not doing that. So that's just straight up politics. That's just something you're going to have to uh, the either live or die by and the voters will decide. I mean, that's always going to depend on these traditions and norms are always going to depend on if voters are supportive of it and does it hurt you enough with voters? Is it going to impact Senate races and things like that? It's not something that I can tell you that this is history. It might be that in doing this, they end up doing a very fast approval, which would be historically fast, and then history does enter it. But really, the ahistorical thing was what happened with Garland. That's pretty unusual. Yes, there have been a few cases of, um, of waiting, such as with the Earl Warren. But generally, you know, to make a nomination in February and not have it acted on at all by the Senate, no, that was, that was ahistorical. Um, and you know, the rest of the politics, um, you had an election after that. So there was a time to judge the party for those actions and that's what happened. Okay. So, um, just as appointing a Supreme court justice could be in the letter of the constitution there and fine, Um, there's also, you're hearing a lot of talk about court packing. Again, you know, one, I want to stress something that, uh, so court packing is a term used, it's really a pejorative term. Um, it's not. When Franklin Roosevelt put the idea forward, it was, um, judicial reform or restructuring of the Supreme Court for modern times. Court packing was by the opponent. So it's kind of like if we accept the name for the estate tax as a death tax, right? It's like kind of the same thing whenever we say court packing. I just think because of the historical example, we use that a lot. It's also something that wasn't an unsuccessful proposal. When Franklin Roosevelt proposed the court packing, it actually moved the Supreme Court in a direction where they couldn't even get a a minimum wage law passed previously because of the thinking of the court. You know, some of the people who were on the fence, we think Owen Roberts was the the key one. Owen Roberts is appointed by Hoover. When I talked about earlier that Hoover's choice, Parker, was not approved, it's Owen Roberts who gets the nomination. He's the one who becomes a swing. So it's not like the, the, the people that were really against the New Deal policies swung. One of them retires, and then Owen Roberts, who is kind of a fence-sitter anyway, says, look, I'm going to allow this minimum wage in this case. Better argued, a little bit different law. Who knows? And you start to see movement. So he got movement. He also got judicial reform. He just didn't add to the Supreme Court in the particular bill that passed the Senate. I talked about that with Chris Novembrino. I'm going to include that section here. Here with uh, Chris Novembrino of Don't Worry About the Government and All in the Family. Uh, you know him. And I want to talk a bit about court packing. Uh, and I know it's a topic on on your mind.
2: Yes. Yes, it is. It's a topic on my mind because it's a topic that has started getting on the minds of others. So... I think that court packing is diagnosing a symptom as a disease. So the the symptom here is we have a crisis of legitimacy in the Supreme Court. And so a number of people have looked at this and said, well, the issue is that it's illegitimate because the makeup of the Supreme Court is not as I would like it. So... I think we should stack it. And so this started in The Intercept this week. Midi Hassan wrote an editorial, uh, a lengthy one that I'm going to talk about and don't worry about the government longer at greater length, where he argued that the court should be brought up to 11 justices and made uh, m- multiple different arguments as to why this is s- something of a wisdom. But I have seen that this argument has advanced even further in really about 72 hours to people making the argument that the Supreme Court should be brought up to 15 justices um, in in an attempt to reestablish legitimacy. It has resulted, the Kavanaugh nomination, in a radicalization of the left of center's
1: approach towards the judiciary. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
0: Right, and so uh, court packing um, comes up from t- it. Actually, y- you hear it a lot, in not just in that, but in a lot in social media. You hear individuals mentioning it. It's particularly coming from the left, a little bit on the you know here poke right, uh, almost in the sense of if you're going to do it, we're going to do it before you kind of thing, and that could certainly happen. Um, so, of course, the quickest thing to say is that you can't court pack because FDR tried it and it didn't work. And that's where I, you know, I'm the history guy, uh, history politics guy, right? And and I'm a lot of times saying that, uh, you know, saying just that. I'm the one that will bring up that historic example. But I also find the reverse is true, that sometimes a historical example is so ingrained, but not all of the context surrounding the history. So we've got to look not just at the context, bring context to politics today, but also bring more context to to history, to understand it better than, say, a
2: bit of a textbook or quick response version. Because the FDR court stacking play, while not successful in the sense of stacking the court, was very effective in terms of getting his New Deal legislation passed, right? Well, absolutely.
0: And you, you have to look at uh, several factors um, behind it that, first of all, um if it's not known that there is no provision in the constitution for the size of the supreme court so that's uh, congress can determine that so um and you don't need a constitutional amendment so franklin roosevelt even even running in 19 um 32 makes a quick reference to it's a little unclear if it's winning the Supreme Court or packing the Supreme Court, but that he's that he's can, he wants the Congress and he wants the Supreme Court. In 1933, makes a rev a quick reference to packing the court. It's it's enough to get the Republican chairman to have a counterstatement that that would be outrageous. But it's as he starts out, and he has Congress. They got 90 plus seats in Congress. They start passing all of this legislation, and. Many of the New Deal legislations passed by an overwhelming Congress elected by the people and signed by the president are being ruled unconstitutional in the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is full of older men. Uh, Some have been appointed by Wilson or others. And it's in particularly when a New York minimum wage law that even a lot of moderates on the GOP side felt was uh, you know, it was basically a minimum wage will bill. And this is the context, by the way, you have to see the, these things, that this is a, a kind of bill that almost, whether one wants to do a minimum wage or not, almost no one on any 2018 political spectrum thinks that you can't do a minimum wage bill. But at that time, that's the kind of thing that the, Supreme Court was ruling unconstitutional. I think it's important to think about that when you think about the size of the problem that FDR was confronting. And there are several other bills. He was really worried about Social Security. He's getting worried about the um, you know, the uh, Wagner Act, which, which was price controls and wage controls and, you know, and, and um, labor unions and things like that. He's, getting wonder- he's starting to wonder if he can have any economic effect at all when he was very much elected to do something about the economy. And so uh, he comes up with, after a series of frustrations, a plan that uh, he will add justices to the Supreme Court as they retire. So it would, you know, and this this is the difference between some of these proposals that could be floated now and what FDR was doing and why FDR's was so weak. One of it is that it was tied to age. So the president could appoint a new younger judge for each federal judge with 10 years of service who did not retire or resign after reaching 70 years. So they were going to limit him to no more than six, which is still a lot. <laughs> and uh, it also applied to lower level uh, courts as well. So it was allowing the president to quickly replace the federal judiciary. and But it was tied to age. Now, this uh, particular bill, first of all, this is the point that where it's later in FDR's term, uh, the year, I think it was 37, to get this right. But uh,
2: Yeah, I think it was 37.
0: February 5th, 1937 is when he presents it. This is after there's some downtick in the economy. Roosevelt has developed opposition even within the Democratic Party among Southern conservatives. He's also a large uh, figure, and this is what makes it so different from any court-packing plan you could have today. A lot of it was not about court packing at all. It was about how powerful we wanted to make a president, which in many ways is the exact opposite of so the argument of some people who want to pack the court now to protect against the presidency. So that's one thing to consider, and that's where some of the opposition came from. Also, making something about age when there were a lot of like you know 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds in the U.S. Senate was not very smart hit uh, the Senate like a you know like a lead balloon as it were. Um there are a couple other mistakes that he made, probably releasing it too fast, uh not allowing the Senate to be involved in it. One of the things Speaker Bankhead says is is, I wonder why the president wouldn't want to contact me about something like this. <laughs> um Senate doesn't like it. There's tremendous opposition. It's just at the time where some of the senators are looking for an issue to buck Roosevelt on. They, he's so popular and his legislation is so popular that they have to vote every time. And they're starting to feel that a little bit, that friction. One senator in particular, um, Hatton Sumner's um, – well, let's just say congressman in case I get, I'm not sure it's Senator – Hatton Sumner says, um, this is where I cash in my chips. So it's the issue that a lot of people just were, there's a lot of pent up frustration. And so it goes beyond just the issue of court packing. But then over the time, it's taken this magical significance that you can't pack the court. Well, you absolutely can. And there's nothing uh, in, in history that would prevent it from happening. And particularly when you're seeing people engage in a lot of new and different types of tactics and politics. The
2: thing that was keeping the Supreme Court at nine and has created that nine is a norm. And so the thing for a lot of Trump partisans to consider is that once you play a new politics of unsacred norms and you open up the permission structure to disrespect norms – everyone is going to disrespect norms. You're not going to be able to use the norms as a weapon.
0: Let's take a step from that, by the way. And 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 I don't know if it's to be fair or not, or just to look at it a little differently. It's not just a few people in the room stepping away from norms. It's the American people who have decided that, well groups of the American people who have decided they'd rather step away from norms. They hate norms. The word establishment, right?
2: I think swing voters have been sort of sending this message to the ballot box routinely is that they want to change. That people who are true independents and vote for Bush and then Obama and then Trump and have a continuity through it. They tend to tell themselves when they go to vote. I just think it's time for a change. And they don't like politics as usual, which is ultimately how Trump arrived here. It, it, it All of his success, the same thing with Bernie, too. All of his success in 2016, I think, of course. roots back to Americans thinking a lot of the game is unpalatable and unsatisfactory and isn't yielding results. And so they wanted someone to smash up norms. I, I, I think that... People want the norms smashed up they don't like, and the problem is when you vote to throw stuff in the fireplace, eventually things that you like get thrown in the fireplace as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean I think that's that's what will be found out with a, a, any of these things. and it will be whoa uh, when there's a uh, when there's a you know the, the system is designed with a lot of checks and balances. the institutions are, are kind of increase that. Check and balance. Remember, there's nothing in the Constitution about filibusters, but filibusters created an additional check, not one I particularly liked, but an additional check. The idea of the rules committee in the House and the control of the speaker and control of legislation and rules packages surrounding every bill. These are things that are not in the Constitution that create additional slowdowns and checks and things. And you have, um, I think it's awfully interesting to look at it from that consumer of politics point of view and say, just to say consumers are getting more involved with their doctor and they're getting more involved with their politician. Guess what? They know what the plays are. They're smarter. I mean, this would be the most positive view of things that the consumer of politics knows your meta now. They know how the game is played. They know what the Democrats do this. The Republicans do this. Uh, they've seen it on the news. You've, you've There's been so much analysis of it. There's blogs. There's social media now. It's not just a few people watching C-SPAN as it might have been in the 90s. They no longer just see an original instance of, say, a Supreme Court justice being challenged. They see it as part of an archetype, as part of a meta, as, oh, this is what you do. They see these things as um, they see how the game is played. You know, in football, we'd say they're watching the film. The American people have been watching the film. They want to change. They want to change the game and shake things up. And so um, that's not just Mitch McConnell or a few people in the room. Mitch McConnell is responding, and when he didn't respond, he got a lot of criticism for it. Mitch McConnell is responding to a feeling in the Republican Party that uh, you're not fighting enough. You need to fight. You need to fight more.
2: That goes back to 2010. Like the Mm -hmm. Tea Party really started this modern iteration of you need to fight harder. We need to fight harder. And it got rolling with the Obamacare repeal bill. Uh, The Republicans had an outcry from their base that they very much did not want the Affordable Care Act to be law. And it placed on the Republicans kind of. An impossible burden ultimately was demonstrated to be an impossible burden of trying to repeal Obamacare. And they were unable to deliver that, but in making that promise, which was a promise made in response to the disposition of their base, you need to fight harder, that opened up the door. Uh, The last eight years, it, it is... It is of a piece that ends in Trump. Trump has moved things even further and he is doing his own very unique, specific, unique unto him things to American politics, but... It starts with the Tea Party, at least, as far as I can tell, in terms of charging up that Republican base into this disposition. Yeah, the
0: Democratic side, you only have it with, with uh, I believe, the Bernie Sanders campaign. I think the Howard Dean campaign in 2004 was a little bit where he said, I want to be the Democrat. Will Occupy Wall Street
2: in there, mm-hmm. too? Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, Occupy. You see a little bit on the left. I I think it was a bit of a hockey stick, slower, but then moved up really fast. So watch out for that one. The Daily Coast, the two 2000- thousand. Six activities surrounding like uh, the, uh, when when daily coast was big you got you got to fight harder against bush and and what he 's doing and not being satisfied with more moderate uh, Democrats. I think in uh, the two thousand and six election and the way that was played out, I think that um, all of that plays into it on both sides where you have the better play is there, so given that context, you take the issue of court packing and you don 't even have a constitutional violation. It's a simple Senate bill that needs to be uh, forged and passed and signed by the president. Now, why is it so disastrous in many minds? Because it hasn't been done. And why is it so disastrous in, in many minds? Because um, the one time it was attempted, one of the greatest politicians in American history was nearly brought down because of it. I mean, uh, you know, he's it's the first time, really, significantly, that the Senate rebuffs him. And, uh, you know, Vice President Garner tells him, you know, you're beat. You don't have the votes here. Drop it. And uh, he, uh, you know, he, uh, I think uh, it was Harold Ickes who said uh, he was um, punch drunk from the punishment. Uh, newspapers are saying he lost his magic. He goes on a trip, uh, train trip up to the Northwest to recover. He's, you know, physically. And, of course, all the politicians that opposed him in the Senate uh, want to join him on this train trip. So it's not exactly like FDR lost all the magic there. They definitely want to repair relations with him pretty quickly because he's still very uh, popular during this time. But it's basically like, hey, FDR try that. You don't touch that. you got to look at some of the
2: differences. Well, it's also what we are fighting around, right? So you mentioned earlier that the fight at that time was around – A minimum wage bill. Well, the thing that all of this judiciary stuff is really built around, it's around two different court cases. There is the Chevron deference from the early 1980s, and then there's Roe versus Wade. And that is the battleground over which this war for the judiciary is being fought. And I I think because it is about this very heartfelt issue of abortion i it is very hard to see a way that you diffuse this by stacking the court back to fdr for
0: a second one thing that's very important to note as a key difference with the way it might happen now it's all conjecture of course but it's 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 recent conjecture um if uh the way fdr did it one of the key mistakes first of all was way too long it was way too uh, powerful six seats are you crazy um it involved age, it brought up all these bad issues, the, the process was terrible, uh, he was too, he was seen as too powerful. It also was never announced as part of a campaign. He did not bring this up in 1930. There is a vague reference in 1932. He doesn't bring this up in the 1936 campaign. It's not what he runs on. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Karabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics. And NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. What if you had a party that ran on this issue, put it before the American people, the candidate for president wanted it, the congressional candidates wanted it, would people still start talking about FDR? Me, with my knowledge of history, I have
2: to say, well, you got to look. It would be hard to argue it's a shock when you say up front, this is what we're here to deliver. Right, and then when you deliver it. Now, uh, of course, uh,
0: how you do it is going to be important. I think, um, as you reference, what ended up happening with FDR is that he not only didn't need to do it in the end, um, but it ended. he ended up prospering and becoming, because of the length of his presidential term, become one of the biggest influences on the Supreme Court. You know, when people say the Earl Warren Court, talking about the 60s, I think what you have to understand is that several of those appointments that led to the Earl Warren Court, even though he didn't appoint Earl Warren, were Franklin Roosevelt. So it was really a Franklin Roosevelt-influenced court. You had O'Douglas o- and you had uh, Hugo Black on there, who were the key, you know, the key drivers of some of the, the liberal decisions uh, of the court at that time. So he had a big influence. He'd get several people on the court, uh, Frankfurter, uh, uh, Robert Jackson. You know, It would really totally change from the, from the, the old horseman uh, to, uh, to a different type of court. One of the things that saves, um, in addition to FDR's bill dying in the Senate, he could have tried again. But one of the things that's going to happen in this time is that Justice Owen Roberts, who is kind of the swing at that time, some people said he wanted to run for president or not, he switches his decision, and so in a Washington state minimum wage decision again, all of a sudden it's now constitutional where it wasn't before, and they called it the stitch in um, the stitch in nine um, the stitch in time that saved nine. Now Owen Roberts argued that it was just simply badly argued before him before and now it was well argued this time it wasn't a he didn't change um but he did change his decision changed and that and also they didn't find the wagner act unconstitutional in certain cases so there was also a lightening of the treatment of new deal legislation by the supreme court and then eventually um a significant older justice um Retiring, um, what's his name here? That's important. Um, at Van Devanter, uh, so Van Devanter resigns, and he's a significant one of what they call the Four Horsemen, who are holding back the uh, the court and holding back uh, activity that the Congress and the President are approving. So if you, um, so when you look at that precedent, it's actually a weaker precedent than what people say. It's not exactly the foreboden action that people have it to be and it also involved a loosening of the legislation if that if the will of the people so to speak at least expressed through congress and the signing of the president um is not heeded time and time again you could open up a new opportunity for this so i think that it involves both the idea to do it which maybe it's too early to announce something like that and then um Look at what does happen, okay? Kavanaugh gets on the court, I mean... Let's see what he does. People
2: are talking about impeaching him. That that's being discussed still. Impeachment's
0: just as tough as impeaching the president. You're going to need two thirds of the Senate.
2: I don't think impeachment is useful when it comes to political capital.
0: No, it's an absolute last resort, and that's the way it's functioned throughout history. And and attempts to impeach judges. I mean, starting with the the, the only Supreme Court justice that and it failed would have been Chase. And there's a real case for him, by the way. When you go back, he was a very. Uh, uh, biased uh, judge in court you know arguing the prosecution's case for it and things like that but he wasn't impeached and i think there's a there's a again that's something that's not foreboding it could happen and there certainly have been lower justices that have been brought up and impeached and some that have not but um i think that route um is enormously difficult now and the thing you're saying which is kind of like push out or kind of um a shame out a shame out of a justice. That actually uh, is the way that Nixon got a good deal of control over the Supreme Court. And that was done not only uh, before he became president with Abe Fortas, but also with O. Douglas and also with, um, to an extent, with Hugo Black, although Hugo Black was also very sick. But they were pushing some of these moral issues as well, trying to get... you know, opinion changed
2: because uh, I and you could see that happen with a Clarence Thomas. You could see the negative campaign increasing negative sentiment against the Clarence Thomas to get him to step down and did it with Kavanaugh as well.
0: I think the court see when when we start bringing up that and you, and you look at me and I know it, it probably sounds crazy to a lot of people. But the packing sounds so packing is really the wrong word. I mean, it, it is and it isn't. It's the using the uh, uh, Expanding using the how uh, using the constitutional power that the Congress has to expand the court to uh, facilitate, uh, you know, American happiness. How about that? (laughs) Now, that's going to be real political. Now, um, if you well, happiness is an abstract concept. Exactly. Exactly. But if happy. But if you see that it's bitterness, because let's say Roe v. Wade is overturned in a case, um, if it's bitterness that results from that and you're looking to that becomes a greater justification for packing a court, say, than doing it beforehand.
2: Certainly to reorder the court, right? So the move away from packing, there are other ideas about rebalancing and resetting the court that I think have not really been discussed or entertained by either side because for both the Republicans and the Democrats, it is a war. It is a crusade for your judiciary. It's not about getting the court system to be... I, something close to let's say neutral crazy idea here um but the, you could also see an idea of resculpting the judiciary let's say bring it up to 12 where we want to have six republican justices or six originalist jurists and um six living constitution jurists i don't know what their their term is but you you have you could see a way of doing this or a proposal to reshape the judiciary that doesn't necessarily result in what you would dub as packing or stacking. Uh, there's a
0: number of ways to do it. Uh, since it's such a large uh, step, and normally in American history, large pieces of legislation never get passed without bipartisan support, you could throw a token to the other side. You could say something like, if you allow us uh, an extra judge, We'll give you something you want. I don't know what that would exactly be, but something that's been bugging them for a long time, maybe a state's rights issue, a piece of federalism that Democrats would normally never give up, will give up in exchange. I mean, you can. You, there's all sorts of scenarios um, you could imagine. Here's the thing, and, and we, of course, need to address it. it here's the first thing someone's going to say about packing the court. I think it's already been hinted at that, hey, if Democrats are going to do this, uh, we're going to do it before they can even do it. Um, and, and then vice versa. So if you do it, we're going to do it. So then you'll have a court of 20 people. And I do understand the argument. The other related argument would be that you're reducing the integrity of the court. And I will say, the court was not silent during FDR's proposed packing uh, plan. Um, Charles Evans Hughes, who had been the 1916 Republican candidate, so was a politician, also governor of New York, was Fervently against it and issued a statement and coming from the chief justice defending the honor of the court was one of those sensible moments that allowed a lot of senators who were afraid to take on FDR allowed them the, the
2: cover they needed. Defending the court. And you saw a little bit of that this time with John Paul Stevens weighing in on the Kavanaugh nomination, and I believe it was either Sotomayor or Ruth Bader Ginsburg sort of speaking more obliquely. So it's not hard to imagine a scenario where that occurs this time around as well.
0: Oh, uh, I, I would almost guarantee that any court packing plan would be opposed um, strongly by the uh, at least Chief Justice Roberts who is not only the head of the court, we have to remember, he's the Chief Justice of the United States, It's the head of the entire federal judiciary and has and is the person that is the spokesperson for the federal judiciary. Uh, so I think that there would be a statement from that. I do think that's why, unlike in FDR's case where it was kind of idea of the week, um, it would have to be something that was solicited from the American people Uh, in response probably to some really grave decision that was very unpopular and part of a campaign where it was either at least a midterm, if not a presidential election, where the issue was floated and then there would be a mandate for it, that that would probably be what you would need to supersede. Well, I understand, Chief Justice, and I appreciate your opinion, but this is what the American people want. Uh, But there are... um, talks and negotiations and talks and and coalitions on different cases but it's very collegial and um you know the 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 famous case of uh scalia and um ginsburg is um you know is is pretty common in the court um this is a small group that's together a lot uh now no one talks about scalia and o'connor they all talk about scalia and ginsburg it wasn't so nice with uh o'connor and and, and scalia but but collegial enough they work together all right so it is very common for justices to change as the court changes. We, we know that. That's the easiest thing to look at. I mean, Justice Stevens was a law and order Republican. Um, he felt that. In fact, many people said Clement Hainsworth that Nixon was trying to get the Southerner. Nixon was trying to get on the Supreme Court. You know, Stevens was very similar to him in his cases. But he became one of the court's liberals as the court shifted. and And judges maybe... I don't, it's not really a political action, it's the, it's the back and forth on decisions. It's how, it's, it's weird, you are a different person when you're the fifth vote on the Supreme Court. You're not when you're in the, in the background and you're just kind of flavoring a decision or writing a little bit of a concurrence on the
2: way the court's going to go anyway. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places